words appear. The email addresses and groups mentioned on this program no longer exist. Blind Like Me does exist in its new incarnation on groups.io. To join, send a blank email to blindlikeme plus subscribe at groups.io. That's blindlikeme plus subscribe at groups.io. show called Blind Like Me is Bruce Quinn, and Bruce is a, a professional broadcaster, and I've heard people say, what this show really needs is a professional broadcaster, and we have one today. Bruce, how are you, sir? Oh, I'm fine. I'm not sure how professional I am, but I've been around it a little while. Well, you've done, uh, you've done a lot of radio in your life, haven't you? Well, that could well be true. I've started several radio stations with the Federal Communications Commission. And uh, I've been around them for a while. Uh, you know, there's there, uh, the more of these I do, the more I learn. There is an immense interest by blind people in radio because, it, of course, it would be a natural medium for us. It would be a natural thing for blind folks to gravitate to radio because it's what we hear, and that's our means of communication let's uh, let's talk about your radio in a little bit let's get back to to your uh, to early times are you were you are you totally blind well i'm legally blind i'm nearly blind but not totally so so you have some uh, light perception or maybe a little better than that or what a little better than that uh can you see uh can you see recognize faces do you have that much vision Oh, if I get in their face, I can. If, if you get in, <laughs> you get in their face, you can recognize them. <laughs> there you go, but not from across the room or even from any distance. Yeah. So you're, uh, and you, of course, you can't read, you can't see TV screen or any of those things. I guess. Oh, television doesn't do me much good. Yeah, no. I guess. I guess not. And, and how did how did this happen? Did you start out this way, or or what? How did you become blind? I was born that way. You were born that way. Did you have more sight at one time? Nope. 
This is the way it's always been. That's, this is the way it's always been. This is the hand that, uh, that they the dealt you, yeah. And and uh, you mind asking, what age are you? I'm now uh, 48. 48. So you were born back in the late 40s, early 50s? Uh, Mid-50s. Mid, Mid-50s. Okay. So uh, your parents uh, treated you normal, or they or did they have any other blind children, or just you, or what? Uh, just me. Just uh, Bruce. And so you have, bro you have siblings, brothers and sisters? Uh, yeah, they have, uh, well, they are nearsighted, but... They have it a lot better than I do, as far as eyesight. Yeah, no, no other real blind, uh, no. uh, legally blind kids. Uh, and and so you grew up. How was your childhood? Did they let you rope and I mean run and ramble and uh, be a fairly normal? I hate to use that word, but a fairly normal child. They tried, but it wasn't always possible. Yeah, because the games other kids played, I really couldn't take part in a lot of them. But I have no bitter feelings about just the way it goes. Well, no, you you play with the hand that that you dealt. Did you? That's um, right. Did you go to uh, when they when you were six and they decided to they realized they'd send you to school? What was their decision? Uh, uh, they sent me to the regular school, and uh, of course that was more difficult for me not being able to see the blackboard or even see the teacher. Yeah. And so, yeah, it made things a lot more difficult for me. Uh, now, <laughs> doubt about that. And at recess, not being able to play the games other kids played. Yeah, that made things socially more difficult. But I've adjusted over the years to not be bitter about all that. Oh, no, there's no there's no point in that. I, I meet nope. very, very few blind people who really are, who are really bothered by being no. blind. It's a matter of adapting what you do to what you can do uh, and and so you went to public school how did they teach you did anyone come in an itinerant teacher or anything and, and and give you some courses in braille or any of that kind of thing well i had tutors and they'd read things to you and i did learn to read and write and i can read print if i hold it right up to my face oh okay and i couldn't read a blackboard or anything like that but i have uh special devices, optical devices where I can read print. It's a little bit of a struggle, Yeah, but I can do it. I can't just pick up a newspaper or phone book uh -huh. and read that. I have to have it magnified quite a bit. Okay, but in in the early years when they were asking the, the kids to, to read, uh, Johnny, read this little book, uh, how did you do that? Did you have someone read it to you, or did you try attempt to read it uh, as yourself? Well, I had people read it to me, and I learned to read it myself. Yeah. And had to blow them up. And so you went all the way through school, never going to a school for the blind. No, I didn't. I never did that. And the reason for that was my parents thought I would have to uh, function in the world, and they just threw me right in it. Well, in a way, they're absolutely right. But then, you know, we we still we talk about this every week. Uh, the advantages of the advantages, of course, going to a blind school is you're around other blind children, and you may pick up some ideas on how to do things from them. But and also, you have a peer support group. I understand that, and that's one thing I did not have. No, you didn't. No, I did not. There were the, I was definitely on my own, isolated. And, that's one of the things about the blind school that I thought would have been a good thing is you had a peer group.
that's something I did not have. Now, maybe it made me stronger in the long run. That may be true. Well, but then also, you were home with your siblings and your family, and you got to interact with them a lot more than than kids that were, you know, there's no other way to say it, institutionalized, that were mm-hmm. sent away to blind school. So, when the, you know, when the, when your sister got ice cream, you got ice cream, too, which, was, which is That's good. That's true. And I've had some good friends who did go through blind schools, and they are well-adjusted people as well, so... I, th- I think that way turns out fine. Also, people rise to their own level. You you either you either make it or you don't. And and so you graduated high school from a quote normal a public school, walked across the stage, got your diploma. Mm-hmm. That is correct. And uh, at at what age did you uh, fall in love with uh, this thing we call the radio business? Oh, I fell in love with radio when I was probably about twelve years old. I noticed that I could hear radio stations from all over the United States, and it was fun to be able to hear as far as you could. That Right away, I learned I could hear Dallas, Texas, and New York City, and New Orleans, and Denver, Colorado, and Boston. And it was exciting to be able to hear these radio stations that were on the air just broadcasting to the people of their towns, and I could hear them far away, and that was fascinating. Now, what part of the country were you in when you were a child? Uh, I was in Indiana and Ohio. Okay. So you were not centrally located, but you could hear New York and Chicago and also Texas and Tennessee and down yes. south. And I found that if you stayed up after midnight, you could hear Los Angeles every night on 640 kilohertz. KFI, yeah. Yeah, KFI. You've heard it, too. Well, my man, you won't do that now. No, not with all the stations uh, on the air today. So you were, you were, you kind of grew up in the, like I did, in the days of AM radio. That's correct. Yeah, AM was king back then. FM didn't really take over until probably about 1978 to 1980, somewhere in there. It, it, when I first realized FM was here, I was managing a little station, and we did a, a call-in every hour where we took a little ad from the guy who had a lawnmower for sale or, or uh, some work he wanted done. We called it the mini market. And okay. we, we lost the AM transmitter, and I thought, well, we won't get any mini market calls today. And by golly, the calls did not let up. And I realized, you know, there are people actually listening to this damn FM I've got. Mm-hmm. But it was a different world. AM radio was entirely different, all mono, and uh, and you could uh, back then a guy could you could listen to a station and without actually knowing what station it was, you could almost tell because they, their audio was all a little different. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, the great world of, of AM. So you you fell in love with radio as a child and DX. And uh, did you get a chance to do any when you were younger and as a as a teenager? Well, I. I listened to a lot of radio when I was a teenager, and I started transmitting illegally as a teenager as well. Somebody, uh, somebody built you a, somebody built you a little AM transmitter. Or did you build it yourself? Well, I built one myself. I found that in an FM tube radio that they oscillate. There's an oscillator in them. Yeah. And I found that if you modulated that oscillator and hooked an antenna at a certain place in it, mm-hmm. 
that you were actually on the air. And I just happened to stumble into a tube-type FM radio that put out half a watt. Yeah. And I was able to transmit for about three, four miles that, that's great. That. A, a half a watt at that time on the FM band would do well because nobody was on. I mean, on the, there wasn't yeah. much on the yeah. FM band in now, the was early seventies. So. Was this transmitting on AM or FM? It was on FM. And so there you were with your little mono FM, a couple three miles, playing records for the neighbors. Mm-hmm. And it got pretty popular in the school. That was my way of. Uh, making friends that they could go home and listen to my radio station. Yeah, none of the sighted kids had that. You, so you had no, to... just me. <laughs> I was the only one, and that was a lot of fun. Now, of course, everything was turntables back then. Did you, you set you up a couple of turntables and tie them in some way with the audio? Yeah, I had uh, turntables and reel-to-reel tape. Yeah, and if you wanted to be able to take off for a while, automation was reel-to-reel tape yeah, back then. Put that reel-to-reel tape on at three and three-fourths and let it run an hour while you um, did, when did, did something yeah. else. You could take a walk and see how far you could hear it. Well, that was important. Mm-hmm. That was the important thing was seeing how far you're you're actually getting out, seeing uh, uh, how far you went. So you played with this all during high school and at uh, graduation high school, which I assume was about. 1971 or so. 74. Uh, 74. 74. I, I, I keep trying to make you older than you are. You notice that? Uh, <laughs> a little bit. Well, that is. I'm 63, so I think everybody ought to be old. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so you graduated in 74. What did you decide to do? How did you think you were going to support yourself? Well, I always wanted to have a radio station. That's something I always wanted. And one of the first steps to doing this was you need to get a job in broadcasting before you start a station, of course. You need to know a little bit about it. Right. And you had to uh, pass some tests from the FCC for operator licenses. And at the time in the 70s, if you passed the test for the operator license, if you were blind or legally blind... The FCC had something called a blind endorsement. And the blind endorsement was a stamp that they put on your license that said, this license is invalid, was how it started out. So you passed the test, but you got an invalid license. Well, you couldn't pass element nine, though, right? I mean, there was no way to... to is that was uh, It was almost impossible for a blind person to to do, wasn't it? Well, I passed them, but they asked questions about your handicap on the uh, application for the license. And so I got the blind endorsement, and uh, that basically meant that no radio station could hire me without modifying their radio station at their expense. Yeah, because you couldn't take the transmitter readings. You couldn't tell you couldn't tell whether the transmitter was within the correct parameters. Right. And so what it what it basically meant was that I was on the outside. I didn't get the jobs. Yeah. And so what I did then was I decided, well, to heck with that. I'm going to uh build a pirate station. I'll start me a pirate yeah, Radio I decided I'll just show them I can do it without their life. Oh, yeah, sure, yeah. And uh, so I built a more powerful one. 
I decided it was time for hundreds of watts instead of half a watt. Now you were you were pretty sharp at electronics by this time. I mean, you you knew. Oh little... yeah, and you could find surplus equipment around to do what you wanted. So I found a uh, ham transmitter that we modified for the AM band. It was a Heathkit AT1, okay. about like 30 watts, and we modified it for AM. And then I found a military transmitter that put out hundreds of watts that we modified for FM. Now, this AM that you had, you, you just fed a long wire. You just put up a long wire and... and yeah, put out a long wire, and you could hear it for about 30 miles. Really? And, in, uh, in, the, in the daytime? Yeah, during the daytime. During the daytime. It's, right. Uh, At night, one time, I put it on 1610 and was heard in Washington, D.C., yeah, because there was nothing else at that time. There was nothing else on 1610. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I did pirate radio for a number of years and moved around the country doing it. And uh, I was doing it from a town called Bloomington, Indiana in 1980 on my 25th birthday. Now, we were on FM by this time. Uh, I was on FM with 1,000 watts at that time. Wait, 1,000 watts raw power? Yeah, which means watts FM. Which means you were running twenty-five, twenty, or three thousand watts effective. About there. Good lord. On uh, AM, I was putting out a hundred watts. Yeah. And on shortwave, I was putting out fifty watts. So you had an AM, an FM, and a shortwave all going at the same all time. All going at once. All right. It was, it was my twenty-fifth birthday. And? And uh, we were toasting on the air to down with the FCC. And the FCC in Washington, D.C. picked this up. Uh-huh. And they dispatched George Sklome, who was the head of the Chicago field office at the time, to come down and shut that down immediately. Come down and stop you. Right. They sent him to Bloomington, Indiana to turn that thing off. Turn it off now. All right, I'll tell you what let's do. Let's uh, okay. we'll, we'll continue our little the, the, the saga of pirate radio in just a second. Just take a, a short break back in just a minute with more of Blind Like Me. As of March 1st, 2002, the National Federation of the Blind Newsline reached a milestone. The service handles thousands of phone calls through the centralized service each day for individuals across the country who can now access the daily newspapers as never before. The toll-free centralized call-in center provides service without delay to any subscriber. This also enables those who cannot read conventional print to have, have access to newspapers on NFB Newsline when traveling throughout the United States. The NFB Newsline user can easily choose which newspaper, section, and article to read with the use of a standard touchtone telephone. Each day, with his or her morning coffee, the user can choose that day's, the previous day's, and the previous Sunday issue of each newspaper on the service. The the menu provided allows the user to change the speed and voice quality, spell out, or search for words. 
The service offers such papers as the USA Today, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and the Wall Street Journal. Dozens of local papers are also available each day to subscribers. In addition to carrying the news, local sites can use one or more special channels to distribute announcements of specific interest to the blind. Anyone who cannot read conventional newsprint could qualify for this free service. Many seniors have lost enough vision that reading the daily newspaper is no longer possible. They will enjoy being able once again to participate in community affairs. Blind children are now able to research their own civics assignment and do their homework independently. For more information on Newsline, you can call 1-888-882-1629. On the Blind Side, I'm Mark Christie. On the Blind Side, celebrating the contribution of blind people to societal evolution. We're visiting today with Bruce Quinn, who has been in love with radio since he was a child. He went to to a public school or a normal school with sighted children, and uh, and in spite of their best efforts, he uh, became enamored of the radio business and had uh, three short uh, three uh, radio stations operating: an AM, an FM, and a short wave. He was covering covering all markets there, and the FCC came in on your 25th birthday. That is correct. They came in on that, and uh, we heard a knock at the door. It was about 3 in the morning, and I opened it up, and this guy says, Sklom, FCC, and he's got the police with him. Oh, man. And you guys, just, you guys weren't smoking anything, were you? you oh, you never know about that. You never know about that. You I don't may, do that anymore. I don't do that anymore, but uh, I don't do it any less either, probably. But, but at that time, uh, and the, and he had the local police with him, right? That's and so. uh, he turned the station off, and he was telling me about uh, breaking the Communications Act of 1934, yeah. and I was in violation of this and that. And I told him, I said, you know, this FCC has done me wrong. You guys gave me a blind endorsement on my license when I passed the test, so I couldn't get a job in broadcasting. So you left it. So this is the only way I could do it. And his comment was? He says, he says this isn't the way I want it to happen. This isn't the way I want to see this done. And... He went back to Chicago, and uh, later and, and, but I he, but he for, he forbade you to turn the transmitter back on. Yeah, he said don't turn that back on. He, but he didn't take it with him. No, he didn't. He legally could have, I think. Um, he legally could have. I he, think I think he could have confiscated. And, uh, the uh, police wanted to search the place, and he says, "No, you guys, just get out of here. Let's go." So he actually, uh, in retrospect, maybe had a little sympathy for you. Uh, uh, he did. Yeah. And uh, the way it wound up was uh, he helped me to learn how to fill out the FCC paperwork to start radio stations. To put on a station of your own. Right. What George Sklom said to me, he says, you know, Bruce, you can change this stuff that the Federal Communications Commission 
accepts petitions for rulemaking from the general public. And you can just start serving papers on us, and we have to look at them. And if there's rules you don't like, just file a petition for rulemaking, and we'll look at it. So I just start filing all kinds of paperwork on the FCC. Started started inundating them with, uh, yeah, with paperwork. Uh, to change the allocations, to get rid of blind endorsements, that kind of stuff. And... We got rid of the blind endorsements. They're gone. They were ruled discriminatory in 1983. Well, sure they would be. Uh, they, but the, and they, did you get a lawyer involved, or did you do this uh, No, too? I actually got a couple United States senators to help me out. One was uh, Dan Quayle from Indiana. He was Republican, the yes. president then. Mm-hmm. And the other guy that helped me out was Teddy Kennedy of Massachusetts. And these guys wrote letters to the FCC on my behalf, and we got rid of the blind endorsement. So you had a, a Republican and a Democrat helping you? Yes. Well, that's, that's good. I was grateful to them, got rid of the blind endorsement. Okay, but and, and that helped. That was a, definitely a step in the right direction. But you say that this, this George Sklone, is that his name? Yes. That he, he helped you, or he began... Did you know at that time the procedure for filing for a radio station? No, I didn't know a lot about it. George Sklom had uh, been a broadcast consultant before he had worked with the FCC, and he knew how to fill out the Form 301, which is the application to uh, construct a broadcast. Yeah, to get a CP to, to do your construction. Right. And so he helped you fill out these papers. Right. He helped, he helped me with the paperwork with the 301. And the other thing he helped me out with was uh, on how to put uh, frequencies on the FCC's table of allocations. How to get a consulting engineer to do that for you. Yeah, how to do that. And, and I was able to uh, change, to help change some rules, like uh, there was a docket 8090 that I filed comments on. And what it did was made it so Class A stations could operate on BC channels. And what that means is back in the 80s, certain frequencies were reserved for stations of one power. That's right. Certain frequencies were reserved for stations of higher power. That's true. There were high power frequencies and low power frequencies. Which is dumb when you think about it. And what Docket 8090 did was made it so any station of any class could operate on any frequency in the commercial broadcast band. Uh, and now you thought this was a good thing, or you thought uh, you liked 8090, or you didn't? Uh, 8090 was a blessing for me. Uh, 8090 opened up 2,500 channels in the United States. And I was able to uh, get three constructions permits with my family now this was in the 80s right and this uh, the station in indianapolis didn't come on until the 90s uh my stations in attica and monticello indiana came on in the late 80s okay but this was back before their before the new rule change this wonderful fellow in new york that screwed us all real good uh, this was back when if you had a frequency that you filed for 
and you didn't own any other broadcast properties, you were going to get it. That's the way it was back then. Well, it was kind of like that. But people had a right to file against you, and I got into some stuff on that, too. And I'll tell you how I got these. Uh, I would find the frequencies. I would do the work of putting them on the FCC's table of allocations. Yeah. And then they would be opened up for application, and anybody could apply against me for the frequency I'd put in. Yes, sir, they could. Anybody could. And there was a frequency that I put in in a town near Lafayette, Indiana. And when it came up for application, three other guys filed against me. And and there was no minority set-asides or no... There was, uh, the Nothing. handicapped were not recognized as a minority. At that point in time? No. No. Now, uh, let's... And I got no advantage for that. And what was up was whoever had the most money for the attorney yeah. was going to be the winner. Well, and they, they took into account also at that time, uh, or they said they did, if you lived in the town and you... You got a local preference for that, and I was the only one that had that. You, you did get that. Right, uh, so I did it, get that. It was a much fairer system than we have now, by the way, uh, don't you think? Uh it was a better system than the one we have now in many ways. You're right on that. But the problem with it was, was the winner would be the guy who spent the most money on the attorney. And, and you didn't I have any money. On this was, yeah, I would win it, but I'd have blown all my money on my attorney and I'd be done. Yeah. And so what I did was I put in more frequencies. You had more frequencies. Oh, I put more in. Let, let us explain. Let's explain that the first thing you do, if you want a radio station in a town that is not served, or I guess even one that is served, is you have a consulting engineer who has a nowadays a computer printout. At one time, it wasn't, but he knows all the uh, the frequencies. He knows all the radio stations that are currently on the air. And what you have to do is find a frequency that will not interfere with one that it was a station that is currently operating, and that is done by a consulting engineer. And that is step one in putting a new radio station on. Now you can go buy one if you've got several million dollars, but if you want to, <laughs> if you want to start from scratch, the first thing to do in your little town is get a consulting engineer to find you a frequency that no one is using. So you got several, you found several frequencies. Yes, I did. And the problem I had was I was up against an opponent who was willing to blow everything he had fighting me for that channel I'd put in that one town. And the only way for me to outfox this situation was to find more frequencies and put in more so I would get one. And so I flooded that area with frequencies. Well, at that time, you could do that. You couldn't do that now. I know, because they're all used up now. Well, they're all used up. So you found... They're pretty much used up now. But I flooded the area with frequencies, and I wound up with two. So and you... then I looked in the Indianapolis market, and I put several frequencies in it as well, and I wound up with one. And so we wound up with two stations in the Lafayette, Indiana market, and one 
in the Indianapolis market. Now, was this this Lafayette thing that you went through, was this at the point in time when you couldn't own two? Uh, they were far enough away that I could. That you could own both of them. Right. You couldn't have overlapping uh, contours. Yeah. But you could have them far enough away that you were just fine. And when they changed that rule, I did upgrade. So so this guy who filed against you got a frequency, but you assumed that there wouldn't be a hell of a lot of people who'd want a station in Lafayette, Indiana. And if you came up with enough frequencies, you were bound to get one. That's correct. That was your thinking. And it worked. So he got one, but you also got one. Uh, that's true. He got one. I got two. You got two. He got one. All right. So you got a, you got your first construction permit. Um, I'd like to ask you how much drinking you did on that day, but there's no point in going into that, is there? Because <laughs> I know the thrill. I, I know what. I know how you felt when you got you got that first CP, and they said we give you 120 days to put this Class A on. Oh, I was excited about it. There's no doubt about that. And now it's been many years, and I've had a lot of fun doing them. So you put on uh, this first station, uh, and you did you do on it, uh, did you plan to do mainstream programming, or have you always been the rebel that you are now? Oh, it was definitely different. It was a station that would, uh, it might play a punk rock song. That might be followed by a country song. Uh-huh. That might be followed by two minutes of classical music. Uh, that might be followed by an oldie. Uh-huh. That might be followed by uh, bluegrass. And that might be followed by a big band. So you never took the route of saying, okay, this station, this market doesn't have this. This station doesn't have a, a, a soft rocker. Let's do that. Uh, no, I did not do that. That was not your thinking. No. No, in fact, uh, the station was very popular doing what I did. Now, we're, we're talking about your original station over in Lafayette that you put right. on. Right. It was very popular. Yeah. All right. I tell you, let's uh, let's take a break, and we want to talk about what you're doing now and uh, talk about how much actual... Uh, how much of the actual physical uh, things you did toward putting on the putting on the station back in just a minute with more blind like me a website our crack research team certifies screen reader friendly. Now with this week's Blindsight, here's Don Shaw. You know, one of the really neat things about computers for the visually impaired person is being able to shop online. And one of the really neat places to do this at is Amazon.com. You know, you think about Amazon as being a bookseller, which they are, but they're a whole lot more. They have a, a huge selection of, of items for sale at Amazon, everything from uh, books to electronics to, well, about anything that you'd want to buy. Amazon is a reseller for new items. Amazon is an auction. 
Amazon is like a giant garage sale if you should want to buy a used item and something. You know, I guess you buy a good used CD and it would be, well, the same, I guess, as buying a new CD. Speaking of CDs for music, for your DVDs that you might want to buy, for your audio books, and just a whole lot more. They're just worth going and checking out. They're pretty easy to navigate around on. I would give them a screen reader friendliness rating of an 8. Go and take a look. Go to www.amazonamazon.com. Until next week, I'm Don Shaw. Keep on blind sighting. If you found a screen reader friendly website you'd like us to mention, send your email to blindlikeme, all one word, at txucom.net. And join us again next time for Blind Sites. Our guest today is Bruce Quinn, who has had a most interesting life uh, in the radio business, primarily. Let me see where we. Okay, I see. We're we're cool. Uh, and you you put this first station on. Of course, you had to you had to buy a transmitter. You had to put up a tower or find a place to put your antenna. You had to figure a way to get the programming from the studio to the transmitter, unless you were on site. Uh, who did all that? Did you do all that? Oh, I did some of it. I didn't actually put up towers, though. Well, no, yeah, but... Uh, uh, I hired uh, tower crews to take care of that well, situation. Sure. I would have engineers help me wire them up, hmm. and I did some of it myself. Now, was this first station used transmitter and mostly used equipment, or what? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. It was used equipment. had to save money, so I would have money to build the others because it was more and more and more. And I won't say I had a lot of money because I didn't. And so I had to make it stretch. Yeah, you had to you had to, to buy the cheapest things you could buy and, and refurbish some equipment and get it all uh, together so you'd operate. This was this was what year that you got this first C P? Uh back in nineteen eighty eight. 1988. Um, and I didn't have a quarter-million-dollar budget to blow on a radio station. And so I'd build them maybe for ten to $30,000. And then I had to live cheaply so I could afford it. So you could afford to be in the radio business. Right. I might pay myself 50 bucks a week, and I might be eating uh, canned food and peanut butter, too. Well, of course, I'm sure you did the age-old thing that we've all done in broadcasting. You had that little, that little thing called the trade-out. Oh, yes, there is trade-outs with restaurants yes. and food and stuff. And, and cars and, and whatever you can get. If they won't buy, trade them something. That was always my philosophy. And if they're not going to buy any advertising, trade something. That uh, can yeah. always be real handy. Yeah, it can. So you bought a transmitter, you set this thing up, you fired it up, that, and the call letters are? Well, my first one was WBQR. 
which was my initials, BQ. WBQR, Lafayette, Indiana. Yeah, that was the first one. That's that's wonderful. And you you were on the air. You were you you signed it on. Good morning. This is WBQR. Oh, and it was before the days when you had much in the way of automation too. So so you Matt, I was pretty much in radio jail, a slave to the equipment. You had to sit there and you had to cue the next record while the one that was oh, yeah, playing is yeah, yeah because there was no automation. There was no automation. And you'd have to be maybe cooking your dinner while doing a radio show. It was that kind of situation <laughs> where I actually lived in my radio station. I know. I know. And you'd find, uh, plan your dinner and find something that would last 15 minutes so you'd have time to actually sit down and eat. Yeah. yeah. You, don't, you don't want to eat at the board because you may spill something. You, may, you, don't, you know. Yeah, a lot of that was involved, uh, cooking dinner while doing radio shows, crawling out of bed, putting your clothes on and signing the station on in the morning, Yeah, uh, being up until it was time to sign the station off and going to bed. Yeah. And while I slept for six hours, the station was off the air. Well, that's how it was back then. That that was a tough time and a tough thing to do. And I I I I've not owned a station, but I've been involved in in radio a lot. There are a lot of people who would give their uh, uh, eye tooth to have been able to do what you were doing. A lot of blind people. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, and it was a, you got your fill of radio. Radio is what you wanted to do. So by God, let's do radio. You know. Mm-hmm. So you put this first station on, and you obviously got it to some sort of a profit margin, or you wouldn't you wouldn't still be in the radio business. That's true, and I built two others at the same time. Kept on going, built one in Monticello, Indiana, huh. and then one in Brownsburg, Indiana, which is really part of Indianapolis. Uh-huh. Now, but these were all smaller towns. And the potential of those wasn't nearly what the one that you have now in mm-hmm. Indianapolis is. Did you do you still own all these, or do you have you sold? I sold one of them and kept two. So you own two at this point in time, right? And you, you, what is the population of, of Indianapolis? I do not. Uh, Indianapolis has 1.3 million people. Jesus, I didn't realize it's that big. And uh, the other one is in the Lafayette market, which is about 137,000 people. Which is a nice size, would be a nice size. I'd like to have the Lafayette one. That, that's a nice size town. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you, are you simulcasting these two now or what? Uh, no, I did simulcast the other two when I had them, though. Yeah. I did simulcast those two. Okay, so someone else and runs. They, the... they were my towers were about sixty-five miles apart, and I had it so a program that was on one could be on the other as well, and I had quite a coverage area doing that. You would have, uh, and so you you how did you get it from place to place? How did you get from one to the other? Uh, real nice directional antennas for receiving. Just FM, just took it out of the yep, air? Just use the FM to rebroadcast it, just like I did back in the pirate days. Yeah, just use the FM as the main thing. And, as and the main thing to drive it all. Feed the others. Um, mm-hmm. 
Okay, so you, you uh, um, well, obviously you've had some success, or you, like I said, you wouldn't still, you'll be here. You'd have to be making money, or you, they'd, uh, or you'd sell it, because a, a radio station in a market that's got a million two is worth some money. You know that. Yes, that's true. Uh, no question about it. And the the other one, the Lafayette station, is also uh, uh, worth a little chunk of change. That's probably so. Well, you know it, so you know that yeah. as well as I do. Uh, let's see. And and you, I think I read in this article that you still run this unorthodox format that really is no format. Well, it's different. Yes. I never did want to be just like everyone else. You never did just want to be, hi, I'm big disc jockey. You never did want to do that. You wanted no, to... No, no, I like to do things a little different. Yeah. Uh, um, do you, uh, I guess now everything is run with a computer. Oh, computer uh, has made things so much easier. I can now be 24 hours a day, no problem. Because the computer can just run it when I'm gone. <laughs> sure, and if, if uh, all, all else fails, there's... Uh... Hundreds of satellite services a guy can take these days. And you don't need those so bad now because uh, there are computer programs that uh, will just keep the music going and run your ads and run your announcements. Yeah, do you do you do most of the, of the production work at your station yourself, or do you have a... Uh, myself and my employees do the production at this radio station. so you you don't get playing what you're doing you don't get much agency stuff uh some but not a lot yeah we do get some but it's not a lot uh mostly mom and pop businesses and we have two production studios oh do you do we have you... a program called cool edit which we use to do the production you know, I had a copy of Kool-Aid. It's made by Minnetonka, Minnetonka Software in somewhere in Minnesota. I had Kool-Aid, and, um, of course, there are lots of programs now that a, that a blind person can use to SoundForge and even little old Gold Wave, which is a sh kind of a shareware program, works pretty good. Mm-hmm. So you have two production studios, uh, both computerized, and, and um, you, do you, have a, do you, uh, you do have a turntable in the radio station anymore. Uh, I use it to hold up the telephone. That's where you set the telephone. Yeah, it sits on top of the turntable <laughs> cover. My. But I do, I do have some guys who actually come in here and do a special show tonight. Yeah. And they'll take the cover off that turntable and actually use it. They'll actually play some records. Yeah, they will come in and play some old-fashioned records. Okay, but everything you're doing is on uh, is on computer or uh, or disc. I I don't even use CDs much anymore, because in about thirty seconds I can rip a song into the computer, and then I don't have to worry about scratching the CD or putting it away. Yeah, or losing it, or putting or it in the wrong case, it. or now yeah, it, the computer has made things so much simpler because you can't put the CD in the wrong case, and that was always the problem with CDs. You put, you'd start by putting one CD in the wrong case, and you just go right down the line. They're all in the wrong case, and where am I going to find them? Now, you, I bet you don't have a cartridge machine in the building anymore, do you? Well, I do have those, but they're turned off. They're turned off. They're, um... I do have those. They're reel-to-reels here still. Because I built this radio station about 12 years ago, 
and that stuff was still used back then. We were still using carts 12 years ago. Yeah, you were still using carts, and uh, CDs had barely taken over from records, so you needed a turntable. Yeah, you, you had CD players, and stuff that is now turned off. Oh yeah, that you wouldn't that you don't need anymore. Right. Yeah. A computer can replace probably about 10 pieces of equipment. Well, and, and the quality is so much Cart- cartridges were just a nightmare. I mean, we just <laughs> Oh, try to rewind one. Have uh, fun with that. I have. I have many times tried to rewind them. I, I have done that too. It's a real headache. I remember going one station I was working at, I ended up, they didn't have an engineer, so I ended up as a, as the ersatz engineer. I'm not an engineer, but they didn't, I knew more than anybody there. So I was the, I was the engineer and I decided, well, this was back in the, in the early 80s. We were mono and we got a stereo generator. So the music, then we were playing records. The music was in stereo and I decided, well, I think I'll buy a, a BE cart recorder stereo and a three stack. And we'll go stereo carts. We'll do. I, you, you talk talk about a nightmare. Keeping things in phase. If you drop one, it's out of phase. Uh, keeping levels. I mean, you think it would be twice as, as difficult. It was at least six times as difficult. Going from plain old Menorah, just get it on the air, to trying to balance that stereo and keep it perfect all the time. Carts were just. And there were people that played records off cart. I mean, it would cart the music. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may have. Did you? I remember that from my college days. We did that, recording records on the carts and carting them up, it was called. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and the quality is going to be bad, and they're going to be out of phase, and they're just, you know, just. But now with computers, it's all, uh, you know, everything. Technology uh, is changing so fast; it's hard to keep up with it anymore. Where where is your transmitter in relation? You're not you're not on site. Your transmitter is out somewhere else. Uh, My transmitter here is on something that used to be a family farm. Yeah, but anymore, it's swallowed up by Indianapolis, and it's. The tower is in the middle of a subdivision now. Yeah. Now, what power are you running? Are you uh, Super A, or what are you, what are you running? Uh, we're running about four thousand watts at about four hundred feet of so, average terrain. So you're a you're with a, a Super A. I mean, all the A's now are are. Yeah, um, it gets out pretty well. You can hear this station about fifty to sixty miles around. Depending on it's inversion. Flat around here. Depending on temperature inversion, yeah. Uh, those can help or hurt. Yeah, some mornings you come in if you're monitoring a true monitor off the air, and you may hear somebody else on your monitor if the inversion <laughs> is, a, uh, you know, you've been there. Uh, with those temperature inversions, tropospheric bending, uh, you might have trouble picking me up 15 miles away from my transmitter, and then somebody else 200 miles away is hearing it. I, yeah, trans, how do you do you? I don't even. I've, I've I haven't done any any commercial radio in five years. What what is the what are the rules now about uh, transmitter readings? Do you have to take them every three hours still or not? Uh, I take them every three hours. Yeah, and you how and, do you, how do you do uh, that? I have a uh, remote control that will actually talk to you, and uh, it will call you up and tell you if there's a problem. If the readings change, it will actually call you up and tell you what they are. Oh, if in things, English, if if things are if the parameters are not correct, it'll call you and tell you your plate current's too high. That's right. 
And well, then uh, you make an adjustment, and it's back where it belongs. Sure, because that was always the deal. You couldn't, I mean, you couldn't, you know, you would, I'd, I'd always, uh, I'd, what I'd try to do is get the, encourage the receptionist to get a third phone. So mm-hmm. she could come back and take the, or, or get somebody in the building to uh, to take the, the uh, transmitter readings and those kinds of things. But you can you can do that on your own now. Oh, now we have a computer that'll do it. The computer does it, and it, it the computer keeps the log. You don't even have to worry about it anymore. Nope. Computers uh, will keep the program log, and can also log the uh, meter readings. Well, things have certainly changed, and uh, sounds like changed for the better. But you, your station now in uh, in Indianapolis, what do you you run? Uh, I guess you you run as many commercials as you can. You got I mean, two or three salesmen, or you or what? Oh, about four of them. You got four salesmen, and of course they have to make a living, so they have to sell enough ads to support themselves and you too. That's correct. They go out and hit the street and sell radio ads, and they do campaigns. Do you do contests and things like uh, like? Oh, we have giveaways on the air. Yeah. Uh, like movie passes, concert passes, that kind of stuff. Food passes. Yeah. People go out and eat and go to a show. Maybe. Are you Are you streaming on the internet? Um. Uh, at this moment, the answer is no, but maybe later on tonight, there's some special shows that do stream on the internet. But you don't. Your programming is not streamed on the internet as a, as a every day as a rule. No, of because there's royalties per song that have to be played, and if I did it all the time, it would get rather expensive. And there just aren't that many listeners that listen to internet radio yet. However. I do feel that internet radio may be a wave of the future. Uh, internet radio is not bad if you have broadband. If it's, you have uh, broadband, and there are a few other things that will make it really take off. Another thing that needs to be for internet radio to take off is it needs to be married to cellular with wideband capabilities. And you need flat rate cellular service so you don't pay by the minute to listen. When they make these three things come to be, I think Internet radio could take over and it will be more democratic than regulating just a few frequencies. And when that happens, you'll start streaming all the time, I suppose. Oh, boy. When that happens, it's going to turn the Apple card upside down when anybody can broadcast who wants to. It'll make it much more democratic. Also, make the value of my radio licenses crash, but that's progress. Now, let's, we're almost out of time. One quick point that I noticed okay. in the article: you've been offered a good chunk of money for your Indianapolis radio station. Oh, I've been offered those since the day I plugged it in. Ought to be worth a couple mil, really. Yeah, I I get those every day. Yeah, I mean. Since the day I plugged this thing in, I've had people calling me up trying to buy me out. It's nothing new. Uh, there have been several people within the past month who've called up offering millions of dollars, big corporations and such. Does uh, Clear Channel own anything in your market? Oh, they sure do. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, they're my competition. 
Well, I don't think you have any real competition doing the format you're doing. And nobody else is doing that, are they? Well, not exactly like I do, no. <laughs> well, what, okay, Ian, what is the call of your Indianapolis station? Uh, this one is WKLU Cool 101.9. WKLU 101.9. Right. Well, you've done uh, something that a lot of blind people dream about, and that is actually do the radio business. And obviously you've made a living doing it, or you, you wouldn't still be doing it. That's true, and I guess the main thing I need to say is the difference between a winner and a loser, I've been taught, is that a winner does not give up before he wins. And you didn't. No, I didn't. Our guest has been Bruce. I thought about it many times, yeah. though, but I didn't. Our guest has been Bruce Quinn. Bruce, thank you, sir, and uh, we'll talk with you later. Thank you, sir. All right, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that fellow is uh, living the uh, the dream of many, many blind people. Would like to uh, like to be in the position that he is in of actually owning owning a radio station. It's uh, it's a difficult uh, difficult thing to do. It uh, um, it uh, it can be heartbreaking. It can be uh, lots of fun. It can be lots of things. I fought the radio for forty years and. Uh, um, Stupid me, I applied for a job the other day at one of the local stations. Maybe if I'm lucky, I won't get it. Anyway, thanks for joining us on uh, Blind Like Me. I don't know who we have next week, but uh, hopefully it'll be somebody interesting. If you would like to be a guest on our Blind Like Me show, we'd love to have you. You can you can uh, call me at 936-634-9500, and uh, we'll be glad to talk about it, to talk with you about it, or... You can email me at blindlikeme, all one word, at txucom.net. That's blindlikeme at txucom.net. And come and be a part of the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. More Blind Like Me. Bye-bye.